May I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show that takes you to the cutting edge of science, technology and medicine with me, Eva Higginbotham. And me, Adam Murphy. In this week's episode, we are going to take you on a journey through some extra special science stories that we reported on in 2020. From chatting with a space shuttle astronaut to a 46,000 year old ice bird, we've got some curious tales that we covered for some of our other Naked Scientists podcasts. We also have Naked Genetics, Naked Astronomy, the eLife podcast, to name just a few. And this week, we're going to showcase some of our favourite stories from our other shows. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. We're starting from great heights this week and considering the loftier lifestyle. Mike Mullane was recruited in the first intake of Space Shuttle astronauts and flew three missions in the spacecraft. He spoke with Sue Nelson from the Space Boffins back in January 2020. Well, every hour is scheduled, but in our particular case, all three of my missions were what they call deployable missions. We took up satellites and deployed them. And 99% then of the work you're going to do is associated with this deploying the satellite. And they all typically want to be deployed early in a mission. So fortunately for me on these missions, we for the first two or three days, you're working and getting these satellites out. And then you have maybe two or three days before you reenter where you might there might be some minor experiment in the cockpit you might have some to do with. And then another experiment, which you all love, was take just taking photos of the Earth. These uh, uh, various scientists would give us specific areas they wanted us to take take photos and of course you know that sitting there at a window and taking photos of the earth is and eating peanut m&ms <laughs> not getting better than that uh so i had a lot of a lot of time to be at the windows and looking out the uh looking out the windows we didn't have a space module or anything that had 24 7 operations with uh experiments and the other thing about the deployable missions the payload weights are so heavy that you don't have weight to add in a bunch of experiments. So I had a lot of a lot of time to look out the window. Did you get used to the, the food, the effects it had on your body, on your face? So often people say they get quite puffy. puffy. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, let's talk physiology. There's three, three major physiological events that occur very quickly when you get in a low Earth orbit. One of which is about half the astronauts end up get sick and vomiting. They call it space sickness, but it has nothing to do with Earth motion sickness. It's not correlated. If you get seasick, car sick, plane sick here on Earth, it will not predict whether you get sick in space. You may, you may not. I'm a classic example. I have been sick in the back of fighter jets countless times, but up in space, I didn't get sick at all. Then we've had, we had test pilots aboard some of my flights who you know were sick for a couple of days and they had never been sick on earth so they can't figure out what causes that but that's one thing uh this space sickness which fortunately i do- dodged that bullet but the other bullet you can't dodge one is uh a lengthening of your spine and this is due to that uh, that fluid shift uh it causes the discs between your vertebrae to absorb water and and fluids because now it's all even through your body it's not mig- it's not trapped in the lower part of your body by gravity so that swelling of those discs push your vertebrae apart and it, and it makes you taller i was an inch and a half taller in space than i am here problem with that is it gives you a severe lower back ache 
because the muscles of the lower back don't accommodate for that growth in the spine quickly and it, and it really bothers you with a ba- very bad backache. And then the fluid shift, the other third effect is it does make your face puffy, gives you a mild headache uh, with this migration of fluid into the upper part of your body. So those are the, the three physiological effects. Did it affect your taste of smell or taste or anything like that for, yes. for the food? I know the food was pretty bland. bland yeah. Yeah. yeah, the food, uh, uh, your sense of taste is affected because it's sort of like having a cold, uh, having this fluid in your, your head. You're, you, know, you just have more fluid in your head. So your t- sense of taste is muted a little bit. And so they added, uh, after early flights, when they learned this, they started adding some spicy stuff that you could squeeze onto your you know, taco sauce or something onto something to give it, give it some spicy uh, flavor. To be honest, you, I, food wasn't that important for me because I was flying on very short missions. The longest mission was six days. So <laughs> M&Ms, butter cookies, <laughs> puddings, <laughs> yeah, that was great. The thing about weightlessness, by the way, is that everything associated with habitability, you know, everything we do here on Earth, eat, sleep, use the toilet, that type of stuff, is much more difficult and time-consuming in space. Uh, Toilet operations, I mean, here on Earth, you know, may take you five minutes or something or one minute, uh, whatever. Uh, And up there, you know, you can easily quadruple that time. Uh, with the preparations for the toilet and the use of it and the cleanup afterwards. So that's a big pain, frankly. Uh, preparing food um, is all, you know, you have things, different containers all attached to the wall, and then you forget where you attached them by Velcro. And so you're looking around for those, so you waste a lot of time doing that. So there were uh, times that I, you would really love, I think, as an astronaut to have times and say, I want to be in a gravity vector now. I'm going to use a toilet. I want gravity. I'm going to prepare a meal. I want gravity. You know, all those habitability type of things. But the rest of the time, just floating around is wonderful. You know, it's absolutely wonderful. An inch and a half taller. I don't don't think it's worth the backache. But even so, that's loads. That was Mike Mullane speaking with Sue Nelson. And that story was originally featured in the Space Boffin podcast. From great heights to how we see brights now, there's some really interesting science behind how we see in colour. You might have heard of photoreceptors, the cone cells and the rod cells. Basically, when light hits your eye, it stimulates these cells, which send a message to your brain. Your rod cells are great at seeing in dim light, but can only see in shades of black and white. Whereas your cone cells only work well in brighter light, but allow you to see colour. But it turns out that there's more to it than that, as, thanks to physics, when we see a colourful object, what we're really seeing is the colour of light reflected back to us from the light hitting that object. Katie Haler spoke to colour fanatic Anya Hurlbert from the University of Newcastle. Can we start off with a very brief rundown of the basics? I'm currently looking at a computer screen with a very bright blue background. How am I perceiving that as blue? You're photoreceptors in your eye are picking up that light signal and analyzing it in terms of its different wavelength components in a sort of bluish band, a greenish band, and a reddish band. The cells further on in the visual pathway are comparing how much bluish, greenish, reddish light there is from your computer screen relative to the background. So when you're seeing color, you're always seeing relative light amounts from the thing you're looking at relative to the background. So that means that the quality of the colour is dependent upon the light source, right? 
Absolutely. And since you were talking about your computer screen, I was sort of thinking of your computer screen as the light source. But of course, most things we look at are not light sources. They're, they're surfaces. They absorb light incident on them from a light source, and then they reflect the remaining light to the eye. So what we're seeing when we see colors of objects is the intrinsic material properties of the object that enable them to reflect certain wavelengths more than others. But the light that hits the eye is a combination of the light that's shining on it from the light source and the inherent reflectance properties of the object. Does that mean that if we're looking at something under natural light compared to artificial light, there's quite a difference in what we're actually perceiving in terms of colour? Well, there's a huge difference in terms of the light that's hitting the eye. If I take an apple and I look at it in bluish sunlight, it'll be reflecting much more bluish light to my eye than it does when I take it inside and look at it under, say, candlelight, which has much more orangish light in it, so that red apple would reflect more of that orangish light to my eye. But what my whole visual system is doing from eye to higher levels of the brain is sort of filtering out that difference in the light shining on the apple so that I can continue to see it as red. Thing is, light sources aren't constant. You might have clouds in the way or other variations. So how how does something that I perceive as red keep staying red? Well, that whole phenomenon of seeing that apple as red under, as you say, hugely varying lighting conditions is due to this phenomenon that we call color constancy. And it's deeply embedded in the way we see colors and it's deeply embedded in our whole visual system in human vision. We're constantly accommodating and compensating for these changes in the light shining on objects. So what's the brain doing in order to achieve that? It's thought to be doing many different things on multiple levels, from simply adjusting the sensitivity of the light receptors in the eye initially, so that if all the light in the room suddenly goes very reddish, the so-called red cones in the eye will adjust their sensitivity down to compensate for that change in the illumination to keep the light coming off objects relatively stable or to keep the light signals in response to the light coming off objects relatively stable. If there's more red light coming off them, but it's due to the illumination, you want to turn down your sensitivity to that. And that's what the receptors in the eye do. But it's not just in the eye. The brain is continually assessing and adjusting to these changes in the illumination. That can include levels of, for example, memory. So the fact that I have a memory color for a banana as being yellow might help me to... Um, adjust to changes in the color of the illumination because I can compare the light reflected from the banana at this moment in time with what I know its color should be based on my memory color and then calibrate for those changes in the illumination accordingly. That's incredible. I imagine that's not conscious, right? That's going on below the surface. Yes, it's completely unconscious. We're totally unaware of that. What our brains are doing is really, really phenomenal in day-to-day, millisecond-to-millisecond vision. And color constancy is one of those fascinating phenomena that is really very, very complicated. And we know it's a really massive achievement of the human brain because it's so difficult to enable cameras to achieve the same thing. That was Anya Hurlbert from the University of Newcastle. And that story was originally part of our Naked Neuroscience podcast. From how we see colour to colourful animals now. Monarch butterflies are something of an iconic butterfly species. 
thick orange wings with large regular black stripes and some white dots around the edges. They are famous for migrating en masse from the US and Canada to Southern California and Mexico for the winter. But these colourful wings signal more than just beauty. Monarchs are actually super, super poisonous. If even a human ate enough of them, they would get very sick. But unlike most other toxic species, the monarch doesn't make its own poison, as Phil Sansom found out earlier this year. The monarchs are the quintessential example of a butterfly that gets its poisons from uh, its food. The monarch caterpillar feeds on the milkweed leaves, and the milkweed leaves is producing uh, poisons called cardiac glycosides. Cardiac glycosides, you said. Yeah, they bind to a a universal animal enzyme and they stop it from functioning, which uh, is what makes them poisonous to most animals. What's the enzyme? The enzyme is the sodium potassium pump. And every animal cell, whether it's our human bodies or an insect's body, uses this enzyme to shuttle salts across the cell membrane. It's a very critical cellular function. And without that, basically, the cell starts to have either too much salt in its inside or not enough, which basically causes the the system to crash. Sounds like a nasty poison. Nasty poison and very general in the sense that all animals use these pumps, so it's going to be very poisonous. I I just have to ask, you said they were called cardiac, though. Why? why, That means heart, right? Great question. Yeah, the, the name cardiac glycoside comes from the fact that these compounds have been used historically in traditional cultures to treat congestive heart failure. There have been several really interesting intersections of societal happenings with cardiac glycosides. And one of them is that uh, Vincent van Gogh, as I assume all the listeners will know, in the last two years of his life and in his paintings, they took a turn. His paintings started having much more yellow and the halos around the lights that are uh, so famously in Starry Night or in, in the Sunflower paintings. And Van Gogh was being treated for epilepsy at the time with extracts of the foxglove plant, which have cardiac glycosides. What we now know is that a side effect of too much of this medicine is yellow vision and seeing halos around bright objects. That's amazing. Now, I assume the monarch butterflies aren't having their cells unable to take salts in and out, and they're not getting their heart conditions treated. How do they not have all this stuff happen to them? The monarch butterfly has three specific mutations that we're aware of in the genes that code for its sodium-potassium pump. Quite remarkably, those alter the physical structure of that pump, making it about 200 times less likely that a cardiac glycoside will bind and stop that pump from functioning. But then the the butterflies and caterpillars go beyond that, don't they? Because you said that they actually not only get resistant to the poison, but start to use it themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the most fascinating things about monarch butterflies is they are themselves poisonous and they advertise it with that highly contrasting orange, black, and white coloration. The monarch brings those compounds into its body, packs them away in its wings primarily, and uh, that gets used then as the monarch's defense against predators like birds. You know, it it all sounds like a lot of effort to go through when you could just eat a plant that's, you know, not poisonous. No question. Uh, (laughs) It's a lot of effort, but one of the consequences is you've got that resource largely to yourself. You know, one of the axioms in nature is that specialization is beneficial. Uh, Jack of all trades is master of none. But we can't really think of it just as 
the monarch butterfly deciding to specialize and eat on the milkweed. What really more likely happened is that the monarch butterfly made, or its ancestor made, initial steps towards feeding and specializing on milkweed. In response to that, the milkweed reciprocally evolved a host of defenses to try to push the monarchs away. We call that coevolution when two species are going back and forth, evolving in response to each other. That was Anurag Agrawal at Cornell University. And that interview was originally published as part of our Naked Genetics podcast. I actually went to see Starry Night when I was in New York. I went to a museum and saw it. And I never would have thought that it came about because of the after effects of a poison. Yeah, I did the same. When I was in New York, I saw Starry Night and I stood in front of it for ages. And it's a bit bizarre to think that it might be because of too many ingested butterflies. I guess one colourful beauty leads to another colourful beauty. That's a lovely way of looking at it. I love that idea. Welcome to the Naked Gaming Podcast with me, Chris Barrow. And me, Lee Milner. Every month we look at the latest gaming news. This is definitely the kind of study that should have probably been done, you know, 10, 20 or 30 years ago. We review the biggest releases. So start up the game on your Switch, connect to your cart, and you're ready to go. And because there's a simulator for almost anything, we play some of the strangest ones available. Okay, so my options are drink a good whiskey, go out and enjoy a hot night, go out and get some fresh air. Let's go with drink a good whiskey. The Naked Gaming Podcast from The Naked Scientists. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, how to avoid being misled by any graph gotchas and bonobos that are teaching us about how humans might have developed culture. A little while ago we heard about butterflies, and now we're going to move to their less glamorous counterparts, moths. Do you mind moths? Someone in my family was completely terrified of them. Yeah, I'm the same. Something about them just flapping around my head just really skeeves me out. I'm I'm not a moth fan. Well, you might need to close your ears then, Adam, for this story then, as back in April, when the UK was first in lockdown due to the coronavirus pandemic, Phil Sansom spoke with Zenobia Lewis from the University of Liverpool about how she moved a large number of moths into an unlikely room in her house. I'm a behavioural ecologist. I'm I'm interested in animal behaviour and I'm particularly interested in mating behaviour. My main study species is a moth called the Indian meal moth. And these are actually pest species of grain. And so in a way, a jar of muesli is their natural environment. And as a result, I was literally able to just bring my entire lab back home. Really? Your entire lab? Okay, so a pared down version of it, but enough of the important stuff to be able to maintain my, my lines while we're on lockdown. How many moths have you got? I, I literally couldn't tell you. I mean, I try to maintain each generation at about 100 adults, and I brought home nine populations with me. So a lot. <laughs> so that's around 900 moths in jars of muesli in your house. Where have you set them up? I have them in my downstairs toilet. They are usually kept in an incubator so that I can maintain them at a constant temperature. Obviously, that's gone out the window now they're in my downstairs bathroom. I have a microscope, which I use at times for counting their sperm. And then 
in all honesty, a lot of the kit is jars, masking tape for labeling, permanent markers for writing labels, really bog standard stuff. How are they adapting to life in your downstairs toilet? They're still alive, so I think they're okay. (laughs) (laughs) These are actually quite special populations. I've been maintaining them generation after generation with a very particular treatment regime. So because I'm, I'm interested in mating behavior, one of the things I'm examining is the effects of what's called sexual selection, where individuals, usually males, compete amongst themselves for access to females. And I've manipulated the level of that competition generation after generation for over 150 generations. That's 15 years worth of treatment. I wasn't just going to let that go because we were in shutdown. That was Zenobia Lewis from the University of Liverpool. And that interview was originally published as part of our Naked Genetics podcast. Another one of the side effects of the pandemic has been having university students off campus. And despite Zoom calls and Skype, it's not quite the same thing as getting to wander around the buildings and explore. Back in May, though, one group decided to have a go at making online uni more immersive using virtual reality. That's right, they built a 3D virtual environment of the University of Lincoln. And if you happen to have a VR headset, you can look around and explore, as Chris Barrow heard from Chris Hedeland. So this all started really as uh, we were trying to create a a virtual meeting room space. And because we wanted to use this for university research projects and even actually embedding some like research experimentation in there, we tried to base it off a university building. Literally, just as we got to the point where we were starting this project, we noticed that uh, there was a lot of stuff coming up on Twitter about people missing being on campus because lockdown had just kicked in. And university is a weird engagement, right? It's you, you move there, it becomes your home, it becomes a big part of your life. And suddenly all these people were being told that they, they basically couldn't socialize with their friends, couldn't you know mingle with their kind of extended family. And university is a lot more than its buildings. It's a lot more than its campus. It's a community. It is it's the research. It's the ethos of the environment. The, the buildings are really closely linked to a lot of those memories as well. You know, you can get bogged down in doing every single metre of every single corner and then making sure that the walls are rounded here instead of, you know, there being a straight line. How kind of liberal were you when it came to the, the actual designing of the campus? We wanted to make sure that all the buildings were actually recognisable as the building they were supposed to be but if you learn to navigate this you can also navigate in uh, around the, the campus you can get a sense of where you are everyone has their favorite bit of campus you know and if we try to do things too accurately you know things change quite often we, we're quite a dynamic we're quite an agile university and i literally just couldn't keep on up to date with the minor tweaks that we make as we go along the one question that my wife who actually went to the university said i had to ask you was did you include the swans, because swans are such a, apparently a huge part of going to Lincoln University. Yeah, we, we, we are super into our waterfowl at Lincoln. Um, we, everything is swan something, you know. Our, our bar is the swan. There's mythology around these swans. There's the swan watching. It's, it's you know, you, you've not really been a University of Lincoln student unless at some point you've been chased by a swan, you know. I mean, even our mascot, our student union mascot is, is swanny. Now, we really wanted to get swans in there. But I am not a 3D modeler and I'm not an animator and I could not find anything that didn't look like a really ugly swan. Um, I couldn't find anything that matched the rest of our assets and I thought this is just not going to work. Now, fortunately, so we couldn't get anything out in version one. 
unfortunately, one of my colleagues from the, uh, the School of Media, uh, Graham Cooper, um, has created this absolutely fantastic swaggering swan. It struts, it swaggers, it's got this kind of like funky attack mode. And we we try, we were actually working on this uh, last weekend. We're hoping he's going to go out there in the next update. I just love that, being super into our waterfowl. Now that was Chris Hedeland from the University of Lincoln. And that story was originally published on our Naked Gaming podcast. Adam, if you could go anywhere, where would you like to go in VR? I mean, I think I'd go to all the places I'm not fit enough to get to on my own two legs. So like the tops <laughs> of mountains, jungles, that kind of thing. Stuff my weak constitution isn't able for. Now, for scientists doing fieldwork, I'm sure many of them would love to be able to snap their fingers and transport themselves to their field sites. In October, I spoke to Lyron Samuni from Harvard University, whose research on bonobos takes her on a four-hour flight out of the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, then onto a six-hour motorbike ride, and then finally, after a few more miles of just plain walking, she reaches her destination. As humans, we are this crazy, special, unique species. We are all over the world. We are capable of cooperative behaviors that have no parallel in the animal kingdom. And one of the things that is considered to be uniquely human is our great capacity for culture and cultural differences, which are group-specific behaviors that are acquired through learning. And I think one of the questions is, where in the history, in the evolution of our species, did we develop the tendency for cultural behavior or cultural differences, traditions? When we study the evolution of humans, one way is through fossils. We go to excavation and we find fossils that tells us a little bit about the history of our species. But when we want to look at specific behaviors, it's very tricky with fossils because behavior does not fossilize. And in that sense, we turn to some of our relatives, uh, primates, and especially bonobos and chimpanzees, who are our closest living relatives. This paper looks at what we call diversity of behaviors, and especially one that is emerging between two groups of bonobos that live in the same environment. Each group is specialized on the hunt of different preys. One group hunts antelopes, a small antelope called the diker and the other one hunts a gliding rodent. The striking thing is, is that despite the fact that they live just in the same environment, they hang out in the same places, they still show this group identity in terms of what they feed on. Is that surprising for animals of the same species that are in the same environment to have that difference in behaviour? I think it's very unique and special, yes, because we can imagine that a lot of how behaviors form and come about is in animals reacting to their environment. If the environment is a certain type of environment, then different behaviors can emerge. But here we have the exact same environment and still almost two different solutions to the same environment. Antelope are just such different animals from the smaller rodents that the other group hunts. It seems like such a big difference in strategy. Where do you think that comes from between these two groups? That's a great question and it's a bit of a mystery. One idea that we had is that meat is a high quality food, but it's very rare and it's hard to attain. So hunting frequencies are quite low and when they're managing to catch the animals, they're super excited really hugging each other, vocalizing, and a lot of excitement. One idea that we have of how could this happen, that 
two groups that live in the same area have such different techniques is in a way to avoid competition between them. So if we can imagine that there, there is this high quality food that is hard to access and it's very rare, it might be advantageous for each group to specialize on a different prey so to avoid competition or to reduce the competition. What might this tell us about the evolution of culture? We know by now that cumulative culture, which is knowledge that is transferred from generation to generation and the culture is shaped through knowledge that is passed on. I think this is something that we don't have great evidence that non-human animals have that. However, the basic capacities of culture, which are two different groups, no differences in their environment, but still showing some diversity of behaviors that is evolved as a function of learning, I think this shows that on the prerequisites of culture as it's seen in humans today. So I think especially the fact that both bonobos and chimpanzees show these abilities tells us a lot about how our ancestors were. Another very important reason why we want to study those animals is in terms of conservation. There is knowledge in the world that is in nature and in wildlife, and we can look at it almost as a, a library full of books that no one has ever read. And through research, we are able to get a glimpse at some of those books. And I think with the biodiversity crisis, it's almost like imagining that this library will be burnt and this knowledge will be forever gone. So I think in some ways, studying those animals, we are trying to preserve some of this knowledge and at the same time conserve uh, these incredible animals. That was Lyron Samuni of Harvard University. And that story first appeared in our eLife podcast. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for your audio and video productions. Still to come, we made the switch off daylight savings time a couple of months ago, but where did this practice come from in the first place? And the plans for the giant square kilometre array telescope. Now, have you played enough today? We all know we should try and move our bodies a bit and eat some vegetables for our health, but for some researchers, it's also really important that we try and introduce some playfulness into our lives where we can. And playing is not just for kids, as Katie Haler heard from Stuart Brown of the National Institute for Play in California back in September. Though we are capable of imagination and imaginary play as adults, the drive to play and the percentage of time one in adulthood plays is less than obviously than when we were children. But the wiring of the brain to respond to play signaling occurs throughout life. It's different in in various ages and cultures and genders and so on, but it's there. So that the ability to respond to playful stimuli is a part of being human through our life cycle. So what constitutes play as an adult? Is it having a giggle, relaxing, doing a hobby? I like to think of the best way to define play for adults, and really for children too, is as a state of being in which what you are doing and what you are experiencing is voluntary. It's fun. It gives you a sense of freedom from anxiety about the time 
pressure or the outcome is something you want to engage in again, it can be highly varied. The individual response to playful stimuli can be gardening, reading a novel, uh, climbing a mountain, going to a pub and having fun with your buddies. You know, there are all kinds of phenomena that constitute true or real play, but it is essentially a state of being that is different from all others. And that's not a common way of thinking of play. We think of play a little nonsensical. It's purposeless or (laughs) appears purposeless. It's not as important as real responsibility. And yet, when I look at the phenomenon of severe play deprivation, it has a profile amongst adults and children that indicates it's a necessity for being fully human. If you look at the uh, long developmental evolutionary history of play itself and look at uh, reptiles who don't play as frequently or as vigorously as mammalian and bird species, you find a mosaic of play that is highly varied, just like there's a mosaic of sleep that's highly varied, but you still see play occurring in the more complicated, more intelligent species. And it occurs and can be defined as a separate uh, form of behavior from all others. I appreciate there are, you know, we live in a complex world made up of complex societies, but do you think there's enough play around? Depends on on the circumstances. You know, I think right now with the uh, COVID-19 shelter at home, I think it's tough. No youth sports, no adult gatherings that are festive. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's tough to play enough. And I think that we're going to see some consequences from that. Do you have any suggestions as to how people can build play into their lives? Because as you were talking, I was just wondering if, if it would be appropriate to kind of build play somehow into the work environment, or if that's a bit of a silly thing to say. No, I think it's very possible to, to build play into the work environment. I think it's very possible for an individual to recognize that they need it and for them to find something in their day that gives them a sense of uh, freedom and a sense of fun and a sense of not relying on outcome so that people realize that just like hand washing and a good nutrition are important, so too is finding for yourself moments, even when you're stressed, that are playful, whether it's music or dance or, you know, imaginary uh, fantasies. There, there, it is an important element of personal health. That was Stuart Brown of the National Institute for Play, and that story first appeared in our Naked Neuroscience podcast. Now, thanks to the pandemic, the eyes of the world have been on various graphs representing cases, tests and all sorts. But there are some common tricks in the graph making trade to be aware of, as Adam heard from Naira Chamberlain, the president of the Institute of Mathematics earlier this year. One of the most common ways to actually to manipulate a graph is that let's say you have a bar chart and you want to see how much profit you're making beyond your competitor or you want to show that you know your product performs much better than your competitor. So let's say 
my product makes you a £100 saving while the competitor only makes a £95 saving. So one of the ways of actually manipulating this is actually to compress the vertical axis so that it actually only starts from, let's say, 90 and ends at 100. So when you actually look at that, it looks like your profit is twice as much than your competitor, not realizing that actually the chart should go all the way down to zero. So that's a common practice that that people do. What tips would you have for people on how to like read graphs effectively? What, What would, say someone sits down and they see a graph in a newspaper, what's the best way of going about reading and understanding and not being fooled the the key thing is one look at the y-axis does it goes up sequentially or does it go up geometrically so is it a log scale second every graph should have a source you know they're saying this is taken from a source and also actually look at the date which the graph is done i mean sometimes people will quote you statistics but the statistics is actually out of date so that's the best thing to do is Look at the look at the y-axis, and look at the source, and look at the date from when when this statistic was actually produced. That was Naira Chamberlain, and that story originally appeared as one of our In Short Specials podcast episodes. Next up, have you ever thought about where the metals in your phone come from? Or in electric cars? Cobalt is one of nature's 118 chemical elements, and for centuries it's been valued for its distinctive blue colour. But more recently, it's become a vital ingredient in the production of rechargeable batteries. It's mainly been extracted from ore quarried or mined on land, a process which can be environmentally damaging and disruptive for the communities who live nearby. But what if there was a different source of cobalt and other metals that we need? Well, there is, but it is deep down in the ocean, and as you might expect, plans to mine for it there are not without controversy. Some of the ocean reserves are in what's known as the Clarion-Clipperton Fracture Zone, the CCZ, an area that's about as big as Europe, 4,000 metres below sea level in the Pacific, as I found out earlier this year. Despite being miles away from civilization, the CCZ has been an area of great interest for two key groups – those who see it as a great resource opportunity, and those who feel it should be protected. Now, this is because the seabed in the CCZ is absolutely littered with polymetallic nodules, these strange potato-shaped lumps that are jam-packed with various metals, including cobalt, nickel, copper and manganese. I spoke to Gerard Barron, the CEO of Deep Green, a deep-sea mining company focused on these nodules. A lot of people don't think about what goes into the battery that's in your mobile phone or all the electric vehicle batteries that, that are going to be driving around our roads. But those batteries are made up of metals like cobalt. And in the case of cars, they're made up of nickel and cobalt and copper. And if you think about our desire to move away from fossil fuels, that means we're going to need hundreds of in fact, billions of tons of these metals that are required for the green transition. So today, all of these metals come from terrestrial known landmines. And a lot of people are shocked when they realize just what an environmentally unfriendly process mining has always been. Gerard's company Deep Green recently showed some research arguing that the damage we do to the environment by traditional land mining to get these metals was greater than the damage we would do to the deep ocean through the use of their machines, which they call gentle giants, essentially like ploughs that would run along the seabed, scooping up the nodules. 
The thing is, a lot of ocean conservation advocates and environmental scientists have disputed that conclusion. Here's Professor Alex Rogers of Rev Ocean. The risk lies in the fact that we know so little about the deep ocean, both in terms of what lives down there, but also in terms of the way it actually works. What we understand so far, because of the relatively low supply of food into the deep ocean and the low temperatures, things happen very, very slowly. So animals grow and live for a very, very long time. If the uh, ecosystems of which these animals are a part of are damaged, then uh, recovery doesn't take place for decades or even hundreds or thousands of years, if it occurs at all. But what is living so far below sea level anyway? According to Gerard, not much. There's not much food down there, which means there's not much life down there. And in fact, most of the life that is in the area is very small organisms that live in the mud. So you don't find plants, you don't find coral reefs, you don't find lots of animals moving about. On balance, companies like Deep Green see the ecological impact of deep-sea mining as the lesser of two evils when compared to terrestrial mining. But Alex and many other ocean scientists strongly disagree. I think that's an incredibly dangerous argument to get into. You know, if you start to sort of toss up valuations of one form of life versus another, I think you get into very, very risky territory. I mean, this life is down there not doing nothing. It's very difficult to simply discard all the diversity of life that occurs in the deep ocean on the grounds that, well, we don't see it every day. It's not an argument that I think is a valid one, particularly given our lack of knowledge of the deep ocean at the moment. There's also the wider impact on life that lives above the seabed. Mining activities will stir up large plumes of sediment into the water, which will go several hundred metres above the sea floor, and the wastewater and sediment produced from the mining will be dropped back in the ocean at some as-yet-undetermined depth, which is bound to interrupt life all the way down. There's also the fact that all this mining would be very noisy, which would throw off animals like whales that use echolocation to find their way around. It seems clear that deep-sea mining for polymetallic nodules would be an absolute catastrophe for the deep-sea ecosystem. But Gerard would argue that that is a price we should be willing to pay. Waiting is not an option. It is irresponsible to suggest we should wait another 10 years while we learn more, because climate change is real. One of the most impactful factors of climate change comes as a result of burning fossil fuels. And if, as our study found, that actually the increased metal production on land that will be necessary to meet the demands of the green transition releases gigatons more of CO2 emissions, then that's a really dumb thing to be doing. What we should be doing is continuing to research. We should be continuing to learn. And then we should be, with the knowledge that we gather, make informed, intelligent decisions. Many people I spoke to, including Alex, suggested that this was a bit of a false choice. That is to say, we don't have to choose either environmentally damaging land mining or environmentally damaging ocean mining. There's a lot of research at the moment trying to make batteries and other goods important for renewable energy without using these metals. Ultimately, most ocean conservationists are calling for a ban on deep sea mining of at least 10 years while research into impacts continues. 
That was Gerard Barron and Alex Rogers. And that interview was originally published in our In Short Specials podcast. From the deep sea to the deep dark sky above now, and how we know what's up there. The Square Kilometre Array Telescope, or the SKA, is a giant radio telescope that is going to be spanning continents. Some of it is built in Australia and some of it in South Africa. And recently, Ben McAllister and I spoke with Phil Diamond, the Director General of the Square Kilometre Array Project. The science case for SKA, if I may, ah, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, for audio listeners, uh, Phil has just picked up two very large, thick books the size of uh, two encyclopedias each. Yeah, so they actually they weigh nine point eight kilograms combined. Fantastic! Not good exercise, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so that's uh, two thousand pages describing the science that astronomers hope to do with the SKA. But in there, we have identified what we call key science programs. One is using pulsars to use pulsars to understand the nature of gravitational waves. A few years ago, LIGO, the the, the laser interferometer, a gravitational wave observatory, detected gravitational waves from massive objects uh, coalescing and emitting gravitational waves across the universe. That's one way of detecting them. Another way of detecting gravitational waves from much heavier objects, supermassive black holes at the hearts of galaxies, is by observing the effect of the gravitational waves on the pulsars that sit across the Milky Way, across our galaxy. We'll be using the SKA to monitor the signals coming from a network of pulsars. These are very accurate clocks, nature's clocks, remember, distributed across the sky. And as a gravitational wave crosses our galaxy, it will perturb the clock signals and we'll be able to detect that perturbation and therefore measure the gravitational wave. So like a galaxy-wide gravitational wave observatory, as opposed to a few kilometer tunnel. Yeah, it's using the galaxy as a telescope, as a detector, which I I find mind-blowing. Another key area is to use uh, hydrogen. So with the SKA, one of the reasons we're going from 50 megahertz all the way up to 15 gigahertz is to be able to have that full range of frequency to detect hydrogen all the way back almost to the dawn of the universe. So we want to see what happens in those early years of the universe when the universe started to become transparent to radiation and watch the first stars, the first galaxies evolve all the way up until the present day. So essentially, we'll be acting as a time machine. Is the point just that because hydrogen is everywhere in the universe, it's extremely abundant, being able to see the characteristic radiation that only hydrogen emits allows you to see a lot of the interesting structure. And because the signals of the hydrogen in the early universe are still kicking around in the universe, they're just changed a bit, we can still see those really early signals and kind of reconstruct what happened in the early universe? No, that, that's exactly right. Our, our images of the early universe have, been, have come from projects, spacecraft like, uh, like Planck, an ESA mission that ended a few years ago, or its precursors. These satellites produced uh, snapshots of what the universe looked like when it was about 400,000 years old. Now, bear in mind, it's almost 14 billion years old now. So we have these snapshots, and there's a huge amount of physics being gained from those snapshots of the universe as a baby, as a child, really. 
And what we want to be able to do with hydrogen, which, as you say, is, is everywhere, is make a movie of the universe from its childhood, growing up through adolescence to the mature universe that we now live in. There's going to be some fantastic things come from that, that ability to just observe that time period. Yeah, I can't wait to see what we learn. That was Phil Diamond, the Director General of the SKA Project. And that piece was originally a part of our new Naked Astronomy podcast. Now, here in Europe, it is dark and cold. And thanks to having switched back to regular time from daylight saving time back in October, it's even darker in the evenings than otherwise. But where did daylight savings time come from? And is it still a good idea? I dug into this question back in November. Here in Europe, the clocks have recently gone back, causing, as usual, much confusion. And it's not just humans that are missing their appointments. In the words of a Facebook friend, How do you explain to a cat who routinely gets fed at 4pm that the clocks went back and is screaming at me an hour early? The process of switching back and forth due to daylight saving time, or daylight savings time as most call it, feels unnatural. Why then do we do it? The concept comes rather surprisingly from Benjamin Franklin, who, on holiday to Paris, saw the locals sleeping in through the early summer mornings and staying up after dark, and wondered whether they couldn't just shift their schedules to save on candles. It was a bit of a joke. He suggested using cannons to wake everyone up. Ah, sacre bleu, qu'est-ce qui se passe C'est trop tôt, laissez-moi tranquille. But by World War II, many countries had adopted it, and it stayed with us almost ever since. For countries further from the equator, with more pronounced seasons, the idea makes theoretical sense. If you wake up around 6, 7, 8am to go to work, <sighs> you'll catch the full day's worth of sun in winter, but miss the sunrise in summer. May as well put the clocks back, make the sunrise effectively happen later, and catch more daylight. To understand how it works in practice, though, you're getting into the complex world of the body clock. Our bodies run on a close to 24-hour rhythm, raising our temperature and blood pressure when it's time to wake up, controlling our hormone levels throughout the day, releasing melatonin that helps us sleep at night. Each cell has its own clock, which keeps time by a master clock in the underside of the brain, and the master clock sets its time by the sunlight. But every person is different. The reason you get some being morning larks and some being night owls is because people's body clocks synchronise with the light differently. You can get data on this by looking at the times people wake up on their days off work. And data from Americans shows that three quarters would prefer to wake up and sleep later. Daylight saving time then moves the official time in the opposite direction to what they prefer, increasing what's called their social jet lag and bringing in all sorts of health problems. So night owls don't like the new times. Farmers generally don't like the change because they wake up with the sun anyway. And whenever people are surveyed on the issue, it's usually a minority saying they think it's worth the hassle. But does it save energy on lighting houses, as Ben Franklin suggested? There's evidence from Australia and the USA that reductions in energy demand for lighting were matched by increased demand for air conditioning during the longer daytime. In the words of the University of Washington's Hendrik Wolff, everywhere there is air conditioning, our evidence suggests that daylight saving is a loser. There's counter-arguments, though, that the extra light is just good for us. People spend more time outdoors, the roads are lighter for the evening rush hour, and there's less crime because of the light. In response, others propose, well, if it's so good in summer, why not year-round? Perennial daylight saving time, effectively moving your country one time zone to the east. 
But that proposition also causes arguments, as it would mean that in the winter, school children and workers would likely be starting their days in pitch darkness. And lots of circadian rhythm experts warn that that would cause harm too. So, the debate continues, but for now, it seems opinion will keep flip-flopping on whether it's worth making the switch. Which seems pretty appropriate, actually. That story was originally published in our In Short Specials podcast. What do you reckon, Adam? Do you like daylight saving time? I realised while making this that I actually always thought of it the wrong way around. When you say daylight saving time, it sounds like that should happen in winter. That's when we need more daylight, right? I'm not a fan of daylight savings time. I feel like when I lose that hour of sleep, I don't get as much return when I get it back in the other side of the year. So I'd be a fan of just regular sleep the whole way around. You never notice it, do you? When you get the extra hour, you're not like, oh, I feel an hour better. But when you lose that hour, that feels pretty precious. Staying with our frosty theme, meet the Icebird, a treasure found under the Siberian permafrost. Luva Dalian from Stockholm University told Phil Sansom the story. Back in uh, 2018, I was part of a research expedition to a place called Belaya Gora in northeastern Siberia to go alongside Russian tusk hunters that were searching for mammoth tusks. Going into these permafrost tunnels... And while we were there, one of the local Russians came out from one of the tunnels holding something very small in his hand. And it turned out to be a very small bird that looked extremely well-preserved. What did it look like? It was a bit dirty and wet, but otherwise it basically looked like a a bird that had died just a few days ago. Just, Just like an ordinary brown bird? Yeah, I mean, given that it was partially covered in kind of melted permafrost, which is muddy, it, it gave a quite sad impression initially, given that it was wet and, and so on. But it was pretty clear when we cleaned it up that all the feathers were preserved and the overall shape. And, and you could see a small injury to its stomach where you could see some of the intestines and, and stuff like that. So it really looked like something that had died only a few days ago. Did you give the bird a name? Initially, we have been calling the, the bird Icebird. And you didn't know what kind of bird it was? We didn't know what kind of bird it was, uh, what species it was. What did you do to to try and figure that out? We were going to use the feathers to send for radiocarbon dating. So this is a method that you can use to very accurately determine the age of an old specimen. It turns out that this bird was 46,000 years old. That's so old! It is exceptionally old. It's very close to the actual limit of radiocarbon dating. Did you figure out what kind of bird it was? Yep. We then extracted DNA from the bird and sequenced it. And this bird was from a species called horned lark. Horned lark. Which is a small passerine bird that inhabits a large distribution in the northern hemisphere. What was the state of the DNA after 46,000 years in the Siberian ice? The DNA is in quite poor state. Normally, DNA molecules are extremely long, and over time, they fragment into smaller and smaller pieces. And and this is how the DNA looked in this specimen as well. On top of that, the DNA was also contaminated by DNA from the environment. Plants in the sediments and bacteria that had probably been infesting the bird right after it died and, and so on. By sequencing a lot of the DNA in there, we could sort of pick out the few DNA sequences that actually came from the bird itself. And then we could puzzle together the whole mitochondrial genome, the small genome that exists inside the mitochondria, which are the small powerhouses inside all animal cells. 
did the mitochondria look like the mitochondria of a horned lark today? Or was it like, clearly, this is an old mitochondria here? This bird is clearly old because it doesn't look exactly like the modern horned larks. Today, horned larks are divided into a large number of different subspecies. And what we could show was that this particular bird actually seems to have belonged to a population that was a common ancestor of two subspecies that exist today. So this is before the two species were two. This is the original one. Yes, before the two subspecies sort of evolved. Does that tell you something about how these two subspecies evolved or or when they evolved? We think it does. So these two subspecies, one of them lives in northernmost Russia today, and the other one inhabits uh, the steppe in Mongolia. And so what we think happens is that back during the last ice age, the environment was comprised of a bit of a mosaic of different habitat types. And what happened at the end of the last ice age was that this mosaic kind of stratified into the big biomes that we know today. So we do think that when the environment itself stratifies into these large-scale biomes, so did the horned larks to the north and also to the south. How incredible is it that this bird got injured, flew into a, you know, the ice or something, and then 46,000 years later, it's telling you all about how two different subspecies formed? It's quite amazing, isn't it, that, that something that old is preserved for in, in such a perfect state. It's a bit like using a time machine where we can travel back in time and, and look at evolutionary change. Maybe it's because I watched Jurassic Park last night, but it feels a bit like that. You know, they found the fly in the amber with the DNA from the dinosaur. And it's just this unbelievable event that tells you a million things. It really is. Uh, actually, one of our colleagues who, who was with us in Siberia inside these tunnels, he, he kept whistling the, the, the theme song from Jurassic Park when we were there, uh, which was quite fitting. That was Luva Dalian from Stockholm University, and I think they're right on the money with that Jurassic Park idea. Feels like we could make a dinosaur-type mistake there. <laughs> exactly. And that interview was originally published as part of our Naked Genetics podcast. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening, and thanks to everybody who gave their time to speak to us in 2020. Next time, we've got a lineup of experts looking forward to the biggest science of 2021, from the upgraded Large Hadron Collider to the end, hopefully of the coronavirus pandemic. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Eve Higginbotham and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.